And if you don't know, if you haven't been here, we are doing a uh, five-week series on the armor of God, uh, which pertains to spiritual warfare, pertains to the spiritual conflict. Last week, our message was called Conflict Ready, which is the notion that the church has to have its eyes open toward uh, the spiritual conflict that we face. This is a five-week series. As I said, we're, we're breaking from the book of Acts just for now. We will be back. Um, but in the meantime, we really want to get our, our heads around this idea of conflict. And the idea there, and there's a story in the book of Acts that we're going to come to later on. But when Paul, who wrote Ephesians, was traveling, uh, he had this commitment to teach and prepare everybody, all the churches, the full counsel of God's word. In other words, to hold nothing back from them. And when he leaves Ephesus, he says to the elders of that church, those who are in charge of and and have care over, he says to them, when I leave, when I depart, wolves are going to come in and they are not going to spare the flock. God's people are often compared to sheep as a flock and pastors as shepherds. So that picture is throughout scripture, but complement to that analogy, false teachers are also called wolves, which would be basically the worst enemy of a sheep. Uh, What defenses does a sheep have against a wolf? Uh, Basically none, but for the protection of the herd and the care of the shepherd, right? If you're not in a herd and if you don't have a shepherd, you versus a wolf, uh, it's a done deal. You're, you're, you're sitting vulnerable. And so Paul said to them, when I leave, there's going to be a bit of a power vacuum and there's going to be wolves who come in and they're not going to spare the flock. And the idea there is that Paul didn't just say, oh, I don't want to tell them that. That'll get them really discouraged. That'll really get their spirits down there in Ephesus. And we need like a positive church. We need like a church that says, is rah, rah, we're excited and everything's going to go great. Paul as a wise apostle and as a wise pastor, does not leave them ignorant of the reality that faces the church. He doesn't leave them high and dry or or blindsided by conflict. And by that same notion, he says to us here at the end of Ephesus, uh, conflict is coming. In fact, it's already here and you need to prepare yourselves for it. And, And so that's why we're doing this study because... We can think lots about mission. We can think lots about personal holiness. We can think lots about installing church elders. And there's all these important things that the church must be ready for. But if the church is not aware of conflict, she's like a a pier with no foundations or a a lighthouse which is not attached to the ground uh, and will blow over at the the slightest gust. Um, And so the idea here is that we would be warned, that we would have our eyes open, that we would... Literally, as Paul says, be ready to stand firm in the strength of, and, and might of, of God. And that's what's driving our, service, our, our series here. What's driving our series is that I want you as this flock, as this people of God, to be aware, to be ready, to be prepared for what you will face in your private lives as you seek to follow Christ and what we will face as a church. Because Satan attacks on a personal level. He attacks on a corporate level. He attacks at every point. In fact, last week we saw that he actually has uh, a hierarchy in his demonic realm. That he, there's a fourfold description of his attacks. That there are uh, rulers, authorities, 
cosmic powers and spiritual forces all at play. And so Satan is going to attack you in your private life and he's going to attack us in our church life. He's going to attack you as a family. Okay, and he makes his attacks on the culture as well. There's no question that Satan is active and that we need to be ready. And so this week, we have a, a, a particular piece of armor. A particular piece of armor. And we need to see the armor as a whole. Uh, we can't just see it as sort of a selective uh, equipment store and say, well, I'll, I'll pick that and I'll pick that, but I'll put these aside. The armor is a holistic approach for the Christian to be ready to stand against Satan. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that when, when Paul mentions armor in specific areas, that gives us recognition that that's likely where Satan will attack. Each piece of armor corresponds to something in particular that Satan is going to use to undermine, attack, and dilute Christians. And so last week we looked at the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, which are sort of synonyms righteousness and truth and justice all form the sort of holistic character of god's divinity who he is at large the notion of truthfulness the, the notion of righteousness and justice and the belt of truth was to gird up loose clothing right clothing that would cause one to trip up to stumble uh, to fall over for the equip for the rest of the equipment not to sit properly to fall off or slide sideways the belt basically tightens everything up and gets the Christian ready to put on the rest of the armor. Well, this week we move on to shoes. This is our passage. I'm just going to read 13 to 15 here. Therefore, this is being aware that there is uh, spiritual, demonic, uh, cosmic battles going on. Knowing that, that's the, that therefore means. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's our passage for this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the praise of your people which has been sung this morning. Thank you for our children who are declaring the word of God to each other and to us, Lord. I pray you would guard them in their confession. Lord, that they might continue in righteousness uh, of Jesus Christ. As we come to your word this morning, Lord, we, we recognize our need to be prepared. Lord, so many of us come in here crawling, weak, struggling. Lord, I, myself included. And so your word says to us, stand up. Stand therefore firm in the strength of God's power and in the strength of his might. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be uh, receptive this morning to receive instruction, to be prepared, to be girded up for this conflict, Lord, that we might um, be preserved in the faith of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask these things, hoping that and praying that you will accomplish them for the name and glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, it, it's shoes. We're looking at shoes this morning. Some of you are shoe people. And great, this is my topic. I have like 25 pairs at home. That's wonderful, right? And actually, I did a count on how many pairs of shoes I own or footwear. And I'm not going to give you an exact number. Uh, but let's just say I, I have shoes. Yeah, I have these ones. These are the ones I wear most of the time. 
I have uh, running shoes. If if I'm sort of wearing you know sweatpants and I'm just kind of going taking it easy, I have soccer shoes for uh, when I play in men's league soccer, which hasn't happened in nine years. Um, I have Birkenstocks, which are sort of my casual summer uh, wear. I, I've got flip flops for um, you know in the hockey dressing room. You kind of don't want your bare feet on that floor. Um, I have rubber boots for when my crawl space floods and I need to replace the sump pump. Um, I, could keep, I could go on. I have a couple more. Okay, so we all have, probably we all have, let's not leave me hanging. We probably all have lots of pairs of shoes. We talked last week about, we showed Morgan and his camo style shoes, right? That you can't wear, he couldn't wear his bright um, court shoes for squash. They're bright green, Morgan's are. He couldn't wear those hunting because it doesn't camouflage, right? So he's got a different pair for those. So for every activity, we tend to have a certain style of shoe or a certain um, construction of shoe. Steel toe boots is another one, right? Very critical for, for those who work in the trades. Now, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why it's not vanity to have six or seven, especially if you're Canadian, right? We need lots of different styles of footwear and of clothing because we face every kind of weather, sometimes all in one day. Right? If it's March or April, you get everything in all, all in one day. So shoes are not insignificant to the readiness of a soldier. Shoes are not insignificant to the readiness of a soldier. Shoes have an amazing impact on how ready a person is to do a particular activity. I may have 10 or 11 pairs of footwear, but if I show up in my Birkenstocks um, to, to, to demolish a deck, some carpenters think, well, what's wrong with that? right? They're not, they're not called Birkenstocks. They're called Birkenstocks. Uh, you're not ready to do that job. You know, if you look at the amazingly technically advanced shoes that sprinters wear in the Olympics, uh, there's, there's no substitute for that type of shoe. And so I don't, this morning, Paul says that the shoes that the Christian wears is the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so, you know, the gospel of peace is sort of the characteristic of that, of that footwear. I don't just want to preach the gospel in its um, propositions. You know, this is what the gospel is. What I want to discover is how in Paul's mind does the gospel function as footwear? How does the gospel function as footwear? What does footwear imply? And how does the gospel characterize the function of those shoes? So that's what I hope we can discover for this so that we'll be ready according to the gospel of peace and, and, and the intention that Paul has for the church. Now, if you think of a soldier putting on his shoes, uh, though the shoes were open-toed for ventilation for the, for the soldier, but it also gave, and if you think about this, I don't know if you've ever really hurt your toe. Uh, it really affects the way that you walk because shoes actually need to give your toes room to spread out at the front. Your toes have an amazing impact on your balance. And so the Roman soldier's foot was open at the front so that his toes could literally flex and spread or narrow for sprinting. And they were closed at the back, uh, but they were tied uh, well up above the ankles. Okay, and so the, it really secured the ankle with the foot and gave a sense of stability. And we can think of the shoe in some ways in the same way we can think of cars on a tire. And there's one company who sells uh, car tires, and they have cleverly said that the, the tires are the only safety feature of a car that actually touched the road. Have you ever thought about that? 
in all the technology and all the horsepower and all the engineering that goes into a vehicle, the only part of that vehicle that even touches the road are the tires. All right, so spend money on good tires is, is the gist of that kind of marketing. And in the same way, the soldier, his feet are the only thing, you know, Lord willing, unless you've been knocked down, they're the only parts of the body touching the ground. And so it's incredibly important what goes into those shoes, how those shoes are constructed, what characteristics they must have for that soldier. And as Christians, we find that it's very fitting that the shoes that we wear, the only part of our feet in the analogy that touch the ground are characterized by the gospel. The gospel at large. The tenets, the propositions of the gospel, they are that piece of equipment which grounds us to our reality. Which attach the whole rest of everything to that reality. You can look at it in the negative, which is to say, you can put on all the armor you want, apologetics and faith and gifts and all the rest. But if you do not have the gospel as Christ delivered it to us on your feet, you might as well stay home on the couch. You, the rest of your armor is useless. That's what Paul is saying here about the gospel. So how, so how do the shoes make one ready? Well, there's, three th there's, there's many things. And I, and I looked up a little bit of what doctors said about feet and footwear this week. I, I wear orthotics. When I was a teenager, I started wearing orthotics where they, would, they do it more uh, advanced now, but they used to wrap a plaster around my foot and it would harden and they would peel that off and they would send it away and I would get, um, for arch support, I would get these custom-made orthotics that I would slide in my shoes. I still have them in today and they keep uh, my, my arches supported in the shape that they're meant to be supported because when you walk, it, it, it affects how your knees are aligned, it affects how your hips are aligned, your shoulders, everything all the way up through the neck. And so the, the shoes are critical that if you, you need to be standing properly in order for the rest of your body to function. And so how, how does the gospel characterize that? Well, there's three ways that the shoes affect the, the soldier or the rest of the body. Number one, I pointed this out, was traction. You need to have proper grip on the bottom of your shoes. That is to say, a soldier needs to be mobile. A soldier needs to be able to move quickly. A soldier needs to be able to duck and slide and shift as necessary in the battle. The idea of traction is that when crisis strikes in the life of the church or in the life of the believer... The gospel is that which helps us to respond properly. I mean, it's all well and good to sit around and discuss what, what theology do you believe? What do you take, you know, in your coffee? But when crisis strikes is the testing point of what you believe about God. When crisis strikes. And that idea is that when your feet are strapped in properly to the whole counsel of the gospel, you are able to respond where you need to respond. You're able to say what needs to be said. You're able to deny what needs to be denied. It's this sense that a Christian is ready when the moment calls for them. The soldier who's able to mobilize and get into position quickly. That's the gospel that makes us ready. That's the gospel. Shoes also provide uh, for balance or stability. And this morning's sermon is really called, it's called Get Your Balance. Because again, if your shoes are too narrow, your, your toes cannot spread sufficiently to give you balance. And there's an amazing ability, you know, if you're just standing and somebody shoves you hard, how much your toes flex. Do this experiment later while we're singing our last song, maybe. 
think about how much your toes and your ankles flex in the smallest little ways to shift your whole body weight. And so your, your shoes need to give ample room for the, the spreading of your toes and the stability of the balls and the pads of your feet. And so that stability comes from the allowance of the shoe. The allowance of the shoe. Uh, the last thing, and, oh, sorry, and what corresponds with that would be when those wolves come in, when those ideas come in from outside of the church, which, which would aim to dilute or confuse or contradict the truths of, of, of God and of the gospel, Christian is not easily knocked off balance. A Christian is not easily swayed. And, and in a different part of Scripture, Paul says that we need to be ready, not like children who are tossed to and fro. So there's this idea that the gospel is what gives us stability. The gospel is what reminds us day in and day out of what is true so that when people come along and give a shove or try to lure us away from the truth, there's a stability there. It's like, I'm not falling for that. I know better than what you're telling me. I know better than that, which is why the Christian needs to be constantly reminded of and sharpened in the truths of the gospel. Third thing that shoes do is it affects your posture. And I, and I talked about this a little bit about in my feet. The gospel affects your posture. It changes your whole reality. It changes the way that you interact with every piece of information you ever get. It changes your posture towards God. The gospel changes your posture towards God. It, it makes Him great and it makes you small. The gospel affects your posture towards other humans. Instead of being proud or rude, the gospel fills you with the Spirit and, and causes you to see yourself equally with other people. The gospel changes posture towards self. Instead of seeing yourself as the solution to all your problems, God is the solution for your greatest problem. So the gospel changes your posture. It really affects the way that you walk through the world and the way that you interact with people at large. And I was sitting in Starbucks yesterday and I was sitting beside a guy and I didn't have a conversation with him, but by the end of my time sitting there, I thought, I bet you this guy's a Christian because the, the, the posture that, not literally how he sat with his shoulders back, but he was meeting with another person and the, the gentleness with which he spoke, the way he was, uh, sorry, the seats are really close together in Starbucks. I wasn't eavesdropping. Uh, I was trying not to listen, but it's just the way it is. And this guy was sort of pouring out some issues he was having and this guy was just kindly listening. There was no judgment. There was no unkindness. And I thought, well, this, this guy sounds like a Christian. And uh, I did hear explicitly by the end of the conversation that he was. But there's a posture that, that Christians ought to have because of the gospel. It takes away rudeness and, and condescension and it replaces with a, a meekness and a kindness in Christ. And yet a boldness where necessary. And so the shoes provide all of these things. Traction, balance, and posture. All that is to say that when life happens and life does happen, we don't just react instinctively. I mean, how many people, when, when, when stuff hits the fan, you know, when a kid goes off the rails, when a marriage falls apart, when you're confronted at work or fired, I mean, how many people, they just get into instinct mode and they either want vengeance or they want to take it out, take their anger out, or, or they want to run away. I mean, we, we are filled with instinctive reactions to when life happens, right? But what... What the armor of the shoes do 
is that it informs our movements. And so instead of being a slave to what we want to do or how we feel like we should do, we are informed by the gospel. We are informed by how God sees the world and how God sees us and what God's plans are and what God's strength is. And so we are not slaves to or or captive to our own reactions and our own perceptions. The gospel informs everything. And so when you're badly disappointed by that coworker and you thought, "I, I never thought they could let me down, the gospel reminds us that Every person is filled with sin until Christ redeems them. It gives us compassion instead of anger. You know, when you're having trouble relating to your spouse or or your relationship is strained and you think, you know, it's their fault. They're not doing this for me. And so my reaction is going to, I'm going to get them back. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says, pray for your spouse and, and draw them out and serve them. So the gospel changes how we do things. It takes us away from our blind instincts and it replaces it with God's word and God's ways. And so that's the idea of shoes helping us go the direction we need to go even when it doesn't feel like what as humans we want to or maybe inclined to do. So I just want to look very quickly at, well, how how does the gospel then characterize this piece of armor? And so we recognize that shoes make us ready. They give us mobility. They change our posture. They give us stability. They give us traction when when crisis strikes. But how does the gospel characterize that form of readiness? Jesus first defined the gospel, in my opinion, in in Mark chapter 1. You don't have to go there, but I want to read this passage for you because it's the same word that Paul uses in the Greek here, uh, euangelon, uh, which comes from the same root as uh, where we get our word angel. Angel was a, a, um, a messenger, right? It was a, one who would proclaim the word of God. And so the gospel has this same root and it. it's this sense of being proclaimed. It's this sense of this proclamation of the message. And Jesus first says it right here in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brothers of, uh, of Simon, casting a net into the sea. And they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And going, I'm sorry, it's, it's 15. This is after he declares the gospel. So it's 14 and 15. That's an interesting story too, but we're not there. Now after John was arrested, I'm sorry, Jesus came into Galilee. Here's that phrase, proclaiming the gospel of God. Now the question is, what did he proclaim? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is how Jesus first first defined the gospel. What did he say? He said, the kingdom is coming. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is that the time is fulfilled. God is now ready to inaugurate this amazing kingdom that mankind has been waiting for there's a reason it was called good news it's very good news oppressors as we read this morning the violent will be destroyed the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will flourish that's the promise of the gospel that's good news right talked a few weeks ago about what wouldn't it be awesome if everybody wanted to live in that kingdom where the righteous flourished they got to be free and the wicked were truly punished I mean, that's a good kingdom. That is a good gospel. It's a proclamation of good news. 
And it shifts our whole worldview. It, it leads us to recognize that the whole world, starting with the church, is going to live according to kingdom principles for life, for justice, for, for law, all under God's reign. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the gospel of God. And this is what Paul says makes us ready. It characterizes our readiness. It characterizes the way that we think. And so we adjust our position relative to every single fact in the universe to align with this revelation that God's kingdom is coming. We no longer live for the passions of our flesh. Uh, We no longer live uh, exacting our own vengeance. We no longer live uh, in anxiety and fear of the future or eternity because God has secured it for us. This is the way that we adjust to the realities of the gospel. And so I've just, I've listed four ways that the gospel functions to make us ready. And again, ready for Satan's attacks. This is not just a generic sense of um, casual readiness, but recognizing that Satan is going to attack and that the gospel is going to preserve us. It's going to make us ready to stand firm uh, in the face of attack. And the first one is that it, it differentiates truth from error. It differentiates what is true from what is false. Canada prides itself on being so-called pluralistic, but what we have found is that it's pluralistic for every view uh, unless that view claims exclusivity to the truth. The only religion in Canada that can possibly be false is Christianity because it's the only one that claims to be the only way. And so as Christians, we need to be strong in our discernment against what is true and what is false because you will have people come along and they will meet you as a Christian and they'll say, ah, Christians, I know about you. I know what you believe about Jesus. Let me explain to you a better way. Let me explain to you a way that you can still have Jesus, but you don't need all that stuff that makes people offended. And I don't, I, I, it grieves me how many Christians I see wandering down this path and sh- throwing overboard everything in Christianity that they think they don't need because they don't want to offend. They don't want to come in contact with the error. They want to say, well, error can exist, but so can Christianity. It's not so. Satan doesn't believe that. So why should we? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, other than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or accept, here's that same word, or accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, that you will put up with it readily enough. In other words, he's saying, I am afraid that Satan is going to come and he's going to introduce a false gospel. That he's going to introduce a Jesus that looks similar, but it's not the same Jesus. We've got a lot of counterfeit Jesuses wandering our streets today, filling our churches today. A lot of counterfeit Jesuses who would not identify with most of the stuff that Jesus taught in the Bible. A Jesus who says, I can show you a different way that's not going to offend people. It's not going to call people to repentance. It's not going to call people out of sin. It's not going to transform them from their old lives. It's a Jesus that you can add to feel religious and spiritual, but he's not going to cause you to change. Any Christianity that does not demand that the old man die is not genuine Christianity. It's not a true gospel. 
Our baptism is a baptism into death with Christ, and then it's resurrection. Now, my friends, you, you can't take that one Bible verse and just say, oh, that, that'll be, you know, you need to know the whole gospel. You need to know the Bible. You cannot discern truth from error if your mind is not being renewed in the truths of God daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. You need to be uh, endowing yourself and enriching yourselves in the truth of the gospel. And by the way, it's the gospel that Christ proclaimed. Don't go online and find scholarly articles about the gospel. Don't go and read the latest pop book, pop theology book on the gospel. Go to the gospels to learn the gospel because through renewing your mind in the word of truth, you'll be able to discern and differentiate truth from error. It strengthens discernment. So that's one way that the gospel functions to make us ready. Uh, Number two, it deposits hope into the believer. It deposits hope into the believer. Now, how many of you need hope for the battle? This is so key. This is so key. Colossians 1.23 says this, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. The gospel provides endurance. The gospel is what keeps us in the race. It's what keeps us going when things are at their worst. It's not personal endurance. It's not personal strength. It's the gospel that deposits that hope in you. The reason that you can endure steadfastly, securely, those words that Paul just used in Colossians 1, those things come from the gospel. The gospel gives us hope. It tells us what's going on behind the scenes. It tells us what's coming at the end of the road. It tells us how to stand strong. It gives us endurance. None of us would continue on in this without hope, right? I mean, how much fun is it to live as a Christian, you know, day to day with with the anxieties and pressures of raising your kids in the faith and living a pure life and confronting your coworkers about their sin or or something to that. Christians carry a tremendous amount with them because of gospel transformation. We live with our eyes open in a world that has fallen. We don't do it just for today. We do it for what is coming. We do it for the returning King, Jesus Christ. It's because of hope that we endure. And when you are facing crisis in your life, when you are facing spiritual attack, it's hope that's going to keep you going. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the hope that you will be redeemed. It's the hope that you have the Holy Spirit in you already. So it functions to make us ready by granting discernment, by giving us endurance. Uh, This is a great one. It compels the church into culture-directed action. It's a bit of a compound sentence there. But it compels the church into culture-directed action. We can't miss the fact that shoes are, are a sign of mobility, right? They're a sign of action. They're a sign of forward thrust and movement. And the gospel is what causes that in the church. You don't believe the true gospel, if you have no inclination to see others come to faith in the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of advancement, of growth, of, of, of spreading. 
This is uh, in the book of Acts. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that, my, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so even in the early church, the pastors are gathering around and they're saying, we recognize that some of us have been called over here that the Gentiles might believe. Some of us have been called over here that the Jews might hear and believe. And friends, we recognize that as a church here in Smith Falls, it's the gospel that's the reason we do church. It's the gospel. I mean, any one of you could probably just leave here, find another church with equally comfortable seats, you know, more programs, uh, all kinds of stuff going on. Why did we plant a church? Because we believe that in the activity of planting the church, that the gospel would advance to a greater degree. Some of you had been disillusioned with previous churches, not through a fault of their own or whatever. Some of you had a relationships break in previously in your lives. Some of you didn't know the Lord before this church was planted. Any activity which sees the gospel advance because of church, that's why we do it. That's why we continue on despite setback and challenge and opposition and spiritual attack. We do it because the gospel is advancing through this church in some small way. Like that we pray it is through every Bible-believing church in this town. We don't put ourselves in competition with them. We just say we are also doing that work. And we pray that there are more churches planted so that more of that work can be done. More leaders can be trained. More disciples can be made. More husbands can be strengthened. More wives can be encouraged. More children can be brought up in the faith. This all happens through a gospel impulse that through us, many more would believe. So the gospel accomplishes advancement. Um, my dad uh, grew up in a home where his parents weren't believers, um, but my grandfather was militaristic. He worked in the Royal Air Force as an engineer, and uh, he was a bit of a classical scholar in some ways. He was an, he was an old world man, um, um, an aeronautical engineer for a heat transfer in, in jet propulsion engines, and uh, they had a family motto. My last name is Tyso. I don't know how far back this goes, but our family motto in, I, don't, I can't say it in Latin. Sorry to disappoint you. It, it is Latin, but the English translation of my family name motto is to not advance is to retreat. And when I heard that, that stuck with me very, very simply and very enduringly. And I think that it applies greatly to the gospel because if you're a church and you are in spiritual attack, if you're in spiritual conflict, there's no amount that we face that God would say, okay, well, just... Now just stop. Just stop doing ministry. Just stop trying to do that and the conflict will end. That's not the way it goes. Readiness in gospel conflict is to continue on. It's to continue preaching the gospel. It's to continue making disciples. It's to continue advancing the lordship of Christ. It's not to back off and huddle in and close the doors. That's an easy way to stop conflict, but my family motto is a strength to me in that sense that the only way forward is forward. It's not back. Christ said, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit to be my disciple. And the last thing, the fourth way that the gospel makes us ready is that it actually accomplishes God's work. It actually does God's work. This is the great thing. We, we didn't just sign on to a good philosophy and we're trying to make as many followers as possible. You know, we're not just selling a new brand of Tupperware that we hope you'll ditch your old Tupperware. 
We are preaching the gospel of the living God who makes people his own children and draws them out of darkness. It actually accomplishes that work. Paul says in Romans 1.16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Reason? Because it is God's power to save people. So how does the gospel make us ready? We recognize that as we hold fast to it, that God is actually going to do something. Again, the best defense is a good offense. As God is making disciples and saving the lost, Satan is losing. He may attack the church all he wants. He may attack your family all he wants. But the the degree to which you apply and live according to the gospel is the degree to which you push back his attack. It's the degree to which you are standing firm when he wants to destroy you. So it accomplishes God's work. It is powerful and it is advancement. So Paul says, this is what makes your feet ready. This is what gives you readiness to stand in that conflict. And so I just have, how do we conclude? How, how should we go from here? Number one, you need to learn the gospel. You need to understand it. Listen to good preaching. Listen to podcasts that, that, that are trustworthy. Read books on it. Read the Bible. Learn the gospel. Understand what is actually said in the word. Believe the gospel. Believe it. Surrender yourself to Christ. Confess him as your Lord and then obey it. Obey the gospel. And this is, this is always the hard part, isn't it? Because we still want to live according to those instincts. When somebody offends us, we still want to do the easy thing and just go gossip about them. When somebody, when somebody hurts us or backstabs us, we just want to do the easiest thing and get revenge on them. But obey the gospel. Actually do what God commands us to do. Because this is going to solidify and strengthen you in the battle. A hazy, faulty, or personally flavored understanding of God's relationship to the world will have you flapping around, adrift in the water, uncertain, and far from stable. Now, I know that you all want stability when conflict comes, right? When, when stuff hits the fan, you want stability. You want, you want an anchor. It's in the gospel and it's in you living according to the gospel. Uh, number two, don't tolerate preaching or teaching that substitutes the gospel for anything else. Um, gospel preaching is not commentary on world events. It's not endless political maneuvering. It's not shallow therapy either. It's not, you know, how to have a better marriage in five easy steps. The gospel is not mere therapy. We mentioned this last week. The, the, the preaching is not a pill for your pain. It's part of a lifelong diet of God's word for transformation. So don't let anything step into the pulpit that is not the gospel being driven by the word of God. Uh, number three, this is a key one. You need to remind yourself of the gospel. You need to remind yourself of the gospel. That you were once lost. Remind yourself of your past, your future, and your present. That's how you remind yourself of the gospel. Where would I be without the gospel? Who would I be without the gospel? A miserable wretch. We're gonna, actually, we're going to sing that at the end with the kids. We would be lost without the gospel. We would be in darkness and enslaved. 
Think about your present, that you are currently saved, that you have the Holy Spirit within you, that God has delivered you from sin. He's delivered you from blindness. He's given you whatever blessings are in your life. Remind yourself that that's from God. That's not from you. Remind yourself that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Remind yourself of that. And then remind yourself of your future, that there is a hope that the king is coming back, that he is going to gather to himself his people, and he is going to vanquish sin forever, finally. All the struggles that we go through daily, weekly, yearly are going to be gone when Christ comes back. Remind yourself of that future. Here's, here's my exhortation. This is what I, really what it comes down to. If you've ever screamed into a pillow or punched a hole in a wall because you felt like your life was at its limit, what you could take, that it was just enough. It was just one suffering too many. It was one event too many. It was one disappointment too many. It was one letdown too many. And you, you, you're entrapped by that. You're suffocating under the weight of, of suffering or letdown or, or circumstances in the world. Tragedy, failure, anxiety. This is, this is Paul's exhortation. Don't take your shoes off. Don't take your shoes off. They're still there. They're still on you. There's still a way forward. And it's in the gospel. The gospel is not going to alleviate every piece of suffering you go through. It's not going to end every unfortunate circumstance, but it's going to give you the answer for them. It's going to give you the context for them. Even as you suffer the worst type of sin against you or, or, or disappointment or tragedy, God has literally already used it in your life for some greater purpose. You could only know that if you knew the gospel. So don't take your shoes off. Don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. Because when you are attacked, it is the gospel that gives you the ability to stand firm. To give you that posture and that stability and that balance and that traction to continue on in the calling that God has placed on your life. Because it's not you who brought yourself into the church. God's the one who brought you here. And so don't think that you're the one that's going to keep yourself here. God has got everything under control. He is still the God of the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all under his control and his power. And so don't take your shoes off. Don't abandon the gospel. Don't walk away from it. And this is the end. I think this is the end game. This is the point. This is the point of standing firm. Why is there a conflict? Why does it matter that we stand firm? I think here's the reason. That Jesus Christ is glorified by the readiness and endurance of the church under spiritual attack. Because Christ is glorified. Not me and you. We don't show ourselves, oh, look how powerful we are. Look how disciplined we are as Christians. Christ is glorified when we stand firm under satanic attack. Why? Because it models the victory that Christ accomplished over Satan at the cross. At the cross, Jesus Christ plundered the kingdom of Satan. He bound Satan in his reach and in his ability Satan has not been destroyed yet, but he has been greatly diminished as he's been plundered by Christ. So Christ has accomplished a victory, and then he commands the church, now walk in this victory. Walk according to that victory. And so as we adorn ourselves in this armor, as we pursue this truth, 
as we walk together and stand firm together, we model to the world that Christ is victorious over Satan. That's why this matters. It's the honor and fame and knowledge of Jesus Christ in the world. If every Christian folded and threw in the towel and every church blew up every time there was a moral failure, the world would have a sincere case against what is this religion anyway? It's when, Christ, it's when the world sees Christians endure suffering and continue on and they don't flame out when Satan turns the heat up that people say, that, I think that's a real religion. I think there's a real God behind that. I think there's really something to this. And I tell you, I, I've, I've had times where I felt like my life was falling apart or my ability to do anything right was just gone where, where Satan has just stepped in and just cranked up some form of anxiety or depression or, or unsureness or conflict or physical tragedy in my life. I mean, I, I've been there in some small way. And, and, and it's ongoing. And you may be there too. But what Paul says is that you can stand firm in that and that we do it together. We do it as a church. I mean, all of these commands are in the plural. This is not for you to go home and do privately. This is for you to walk. I mean, it is, but it's also for you to live this life out with your brothers and sisters. There is a way forward. We've been given shoes because we're here, we're on the earth, and we're walking forward in the truth of the gospel.